Well, we're almost through the book of Acts. It's hard to believe. It's always been a dream of mine to teach through the book of Acts, and I hope that everyone has learned something from it so far, and more importantly, grown closer to their knowledge and conformity of the life of our Savior and Master, Yeshua of Nazareth. And that's my hope, is that you are in more awe of who God is, and how He has done so much to redeem a people to Himself, not only Israel, but the nations, right? And that's what a big theme of, book of the book of Acts is, is connected to. But I want to review real quick uh, what we've learned a little bit so far. Just do a quick everybody up to speed review. And these are some questions I put out here on the slide. Number one, Acts was written in what language originally? Greek language. Although there is some Hebrew, possibly Aramaic, definitely being spoken in the events that are transpiring, Luke preserved these events for us in the Greek language. Number two, who wrote? Oh, I just gave it away. Luke did, yeah. And Luke wrote the book of Luke, the gospel according to Luke. Number three, how many years does this book roughly cover? Yeah, about 28 to 30. And I remember it because that's how many chapters are in the book of Acts. About 30 years of our movement that it covers. The first 30 years, you'd say, of our movement, the way, the sect known as the way. Um, number four, we know this. We, that's a typo. Come on, Gabe. We know that it wraps up in the 60s. In other words, Luke stops writing in the 60s. Why do we assume that? There's no mention of the temple being destroyed, which happened in 70. What else is crucial and missing and obvious? Who's the main character so far? Become Paul is. And did he just die of old age and natural causes? No, he was beheaded in Rome. It's missing Paul's um, uh, martyrdom. And you would think that Luke would put it in there. You would think that Luke would include the, the siege of Jerusalem in 70, but it didn't. All right, uh, we're on to number six. What were the false accusations? Oh, I'm sorry, number five. What are some of the theological or halakhic questions that Acts seeks to answer? What, to do with the Gentiles? what about the Gentiles? Yeah, what's the deal with the Gentiles? People who are not born and not ethnic Jews, do they have a place in the age to come? Do they have a place in the kingdom of God? And if so, what do they have to do to achieve that and secure that place? It's a big theme in the book of Acts. Any other themes in the book of Acts that you saw? Mm, got you all stumped. Yeah, Michael. Yeah, the establishing the validity of the apostleship of Paul. Absolutely. Good, good. Thank you. Number six. What were the false accusations brought against Paul last week in Acts 21? Does anyone remember? Yeah, Suzanne? Teaching against the Torah. Yep. Teaching against the Torah. That was a false accusation brought against Paul in Acts 21. What's another one? It's talking against the temple. Yeah. What's another one? Xavier. Yep, yep. It says teaching, the, teaching Jews living among the Gentiles right there in verse 21. Teaching, the, teaching all the Jews living among the Gentiles to apostatize from Moshe and telling them not to have circumcised, circumcised their sons and not to follow the traditions. Are those true or false accusations? False. Yeah. And he does this big ritual to try to prove that they are false. Yeah, Suzanne. Exactly. That's another false accusation that he brought a Gentile, Trophimus, into the temple. And then uh, let's go to number seven. According to the elders in Jerusalem, namely James, what was the best approach to potentially bed these rumors down? Remember, James was like, okay, let's prove all these rumors false. Let's have you do what? 
take a Nazarite vow. And not only take a Nazarite vow, but what else? Yeah. Four other guys are doing this vow as well. We want you to pay for those. And Adrian had a slide up here last week that showed all the different animals that would have been, had to have been purchased and slaughtered on the altar for this ritual. And it would have been months of Paul's wages as a tent maker to be able to achieve this and to pay for this. Months. And again, it would have been a perfect time for Paul to be like, oh yeah, all those rumors. Yeah, actually they're kind of true. But what does he do? Yeah, I got it. I'll do it. Sure, absolutely. I've heard pastors and theologians say, well, Paul was, um, he was trying to be something to all people. He was trying to appease his Jewish audience and his Jewish brethren, but he didn't really believe that. Okay, I'm sorry, but Paul is a man of principle and character. And he has never been a coward before, as far as I know, that I've read so far. Paul, if he believes in something, he's going to follow through and he's going to do it, right? I think that's making Paul out to be a wimp, and he wasn't. He, was, he says himself, I am, I am faithful to the Torah. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. So is Paul fickle or is he not? He's not. Yeah, Brian, you. Uh, yeah, the sacrifices, I remember what stuff to me was that it cost him almost $10,000. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good observation. It would have cost him around $10,000 to, to pull this off, about $8,500 to $10,000 to have done this. A great time to go ahead and say, like, oh, yeah, actually, that's all, that's all true. Those rumors are true. Number eight, what is the vow that they would have been performing? We already said that, the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6. Number nine, how many others was Paul to sponsor in this vow? We already covered that one. There's four, four others. Number 10, was Paul led up to Jerusalem by the Spirit or out of his own volition and pride? by the Spirit. He says on more than one, one occasion, I am compelled by the Spirit to go up to Jerusalem, right? And then we get to verse or chapter 21, uh, in, in verse like 12 and 13, they're like begging him three different times. Paul's companions, the leaders of the church of Ephesus, his own traveling companions, they beg Paul not to go. They warn him. And even this guy, Agav, or Agabus, your translation might say, He's a prophet. And he comes on the scene and he's like, hey, let me see your belt. Ties him up to a chair. He says, look, this is what's going to happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. And the guy was right. And then what does Paul say? May the Lord's will be done. <laughs> see, Paul did not see the warnings as prohibitions. What did he see them as? He saw them as preparation. He's like, all right, I'm, re I'm ready, psyching myself up for this. This is something I'm supposed to do. Remember, he's got all this money that he's collected from all the, the believers in Asia Minor, and he's going to bring it to the, the Jewish um, assembly in Jerusalem and let them distribute it. The calling on Paul's life outweighed his caution. You see that? Paul is a man who doesn't measure his life by physical comfort. There's very few men in this world who are like that. But he measures his wealth, his, his, his worthiness by his calling and his ability to fulfill that. There's a, again, there's only a few people that you encounter in your life who are like this. There's one person in particular that everyone in this room knows firsthand. Most everyone in this room knows that reminds me the most of someone like Paul. You know who I'm thinking of. 
I heard somebody say it. A guy who's about to go to Myanmar, where there is a nasty civil war and there is genocide happening. He's going to probably encounter some danger, but his calling outweighs the caution. And that is Jim Lanely, right? Now, would Jim Lanely do well sitting and warming a chair at Dothan Messianic Fellowship in Dothan, Alabama for five, six, seven years? No. But would Jim Lanely go to the uttermost parts of the earth and, and go toe-to-toe with a Buddhist monk and explain the gospel to that monk? Would Jim Lanely be held up at gunpoint and explain, okay, what is your worldview? <laughs> like he just, he's just amazing at that, right? And that's, I think you know, that's the closest that I can think that, that when, I, when I picture Paul and the, the personality of Paul, right or wrong, I don't, I don't know, but I picture someone like him. And it's really inspiring to me. Now, we're not all called to do that, okay? That's okay if you're like, I'm not called to go toe-to-toe with a Buddhist monk or a Muslim sheikh or anything like that. Some of you, you're called to be one of the most godly things that you can be, and that is good godly parents. And to work a nine-to-five and put a roof over your, your family's head and to be faithful to your wife and to teach them and train them and disciple them. That's one of the godliest things that you can do. Some of you might be called to play an instrument and do that and edify the body with that. We all have these different roles and different giftings. So don't feel bad. I'm not trying to guilt you, but I'm just saying, um, if you know him, I think, I think that's about as close as I can get to someone like the Apostle Paul. So this interesting thing happens, though, as Paul keeps getting warned and warned and warned, he's like, okay, I'm going. I'm going up to Jerusalem. And he gets there, and then remember, he does this whole Nazarite vow thing, and then look at Acts chapter 21, verse 30 now. This is where Adrian left off last week, verse 30. It says, the whole city of Jerusalem was aroused. Now, the whole city of Jerusalem, that's a big group of people. Now, he might be speaking with some hyperbole here. He's not talking about even down to, like, the kids and everything. He's just talking like there was a big ruckus going on. And this is around the time of Shavuot, Pentecost. So, so Jerusalem would have tripled in its population size around this time. Picture the Peanut Festival in Dothan, Alabama. You know, we complain about traffic and all this stuff, and you're trying to get somewhere. You're trying to go to Walmart on South Oats on a Wednesday night at, at 8.30 to pick up some Hot Pockets, right? And you're like, there's a traffic. There's a line all the way back up to the cir- all, all these circle, right? I can't just get to the Walmart to get my Hot Pockets. Can you imagine Dothan tripling in size, though, in population? That was Jerusalem at this time right now. And Paul's walking into the scene. And let me do some geography review. But um, before I do, some people, I probably had four or five people come to me and ask me this same question along these lines uh, last week. What do you think about sacrifices? (laughs) Because it was a good question that that Adrian posed. Uh, Look, there's all these animals that are being sacrificed on the altar. Paul's paying for them. He's planning to participate in this. So how does that fit into our theology as followers of Yeshua? What do we do about sacrifices? Well, I want to teach on this subject, and maybe you guys want me to teach on this subject, based on how many people came to me and asked just in the past week. I think it's something that maybe I need to teach on. So I'm going to give you two weeks to do some homework. And then at the end of the two weeks, you have to promise that you did the homework, and then I'll teach on it. Okay? But it's way too lofty of a subject to spend 45 minutes trying to give you understanding on this subject. Okay? And nor do I have complete understanding on the subject either. But here's your work, okay? And this is all going to be emailed out to you, but I just want to get you ready for it. Number one, if you're writing this down, write it down here, or take a picture. I want you to read Leviticus chapter 16. 
It takes four and a half minutes to do that. Leviticus 16 in its entirety, okay? Then I want you to read the entire book of Hebrews from a good translation. There's 13 chapters, okay? Oh, big question. The one that you read. <laughs> Whichever one you read. Yeah. I, I, I like, um, when it comes to the book of Hebrew, I like NASB. Read NASB, um, ESV. Don't read NIV. <laughs> Even the complete Jewish Bible, which I'm reading from right now. Um, but just, just read it in a good translation. Yeah. Even some of these Messianic translations, they do a little bit too much uh, bending over backwards to make it sound a little bit too something. But just read the book of Hebrews in its entirety in chapter th 13 chapters, okay? Then, if in chapter 8, I want you to figure out what word is absent. This is a bonus, okay? You don't have to do this. This is for the nerds out there. Uh, what word is absent in the Greek, but is inserted many times by almost every major translation? Okay, that's just for bonus. And then lastly, I want you to watch a Seas of Jerusalem series that is 45 minutes long. And Joanne sent it out in an email uh, yesterday, was it? I think. Okay. Yeah, sure. And I'm going to I'm going to give you a link to this video. It's a lot of homework, I know, but I think you guys are up for the challenge. So do this, I'll teach on the subject. Don't do it. We'll just keep going through acts, okay? Capiche? <laughs> good, good. Yes. There's a sale on fire pits over at uh, Lowe's right now. No, it's good. A sale on fire pits over at Lowe's. What is that? I don't get it. Maybe I'll get it on the way home. Oh, okay. Wow. Well, yeah. <laughs> All right, here's the Siege of Jerusalem. It's a great animated historical documentary about the Siege of Jerusalem that happened in 69 and 70. And if you want to get your phone out, you can scan this, put, get your camera, open your camera, and then put it over this QR code, and then hit open the link. I'm going to count down 10 seconds here. It'll take, yeah, if you're 50 or over, you need 20 seconds. Yeah, you need a grandchild to help you. All right. Don't worry. This will all be, it was emailed out yesterday as well. So you can find that. Uh, this is on YouTube though. Just save it to your watch later list. It's really good. We watch it every year on the 9th of Av. Okay. We're going to move on. If you didn't find it or if you need help getting it, let me know. But do all that stuff. Got two weeks, all right? Two weeks. It was going to be one week, but you can guys tell Stacy thank you because it, she doubled the link. She's like, this needs to be two weeks. Yeah, two weeks. Do all that, and I will teach on sacrifices, okay? And I'll have you sign an affidavit letting me know that you did it. So verse 30. Yeah. Verse 30. The whole city was aroused, and people came running from all over. They seized Paul, and they dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. But while they were attempting to kill him, word reached the commander of the Roman battalion. Now that commander, we know who that is. That's Claudius Lysias. He's in verse 20, uh, chapter 23, verse 26. Claudius Lysias. Claudius Lysias is in charge of a thousand Roman troops. And this is more than likely at this time the 10th Pretensus, the 10th Legion. Uh, they, are, they are like, like special forces, you could say, of the Roman army. And where do all these soldiers live? They live right here in the Antonia Fortress. So this is all transpiring between the temple and the Antonia Fortress. I think I have another photo right now, right here. Antonia Fortress. This is the temple. This is the Temple Mount. Antonia Fortress. This is where Claudius Lysias, this is his headquarters. This is where the 10th Pretensus is located. And uh, this is where they're about to drag Paul into. 
They're about to take this guy because he's, he's causing a big civil disturbance, right? And uh, to the commander, Dragson, he sees that all Jerusalem is in turmoil. Verse 32. Immediately, he took officers and soldiers and charged down upon them. As soon as they saw the commander, they quit beating Paul. Verse 33. Then the commander, Claudius Lysias, he came up, arrested him, and ordered him to be tied up with two chains. Pay attention to that because this is the, that's the last time Paul is ever a free man his entire life. Once he gets those chains on, he's going to have those chains on the rest of his life. He asked who he was and what he had done. Everyone in the crowd was shouting something different. So, since he couldn't find out what had happened because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought to the barracks. And that's in the Antonia Fortress right here, okay? So Paul is dragged into this Roman fortress. Paul, in his entire life, although he has lived in Jerusalem and was a great rabbi in Jerusalem under the feet of, at the feet of Gamliel, he'd likely never been in these barracks before. So he probably would have been like, whoa, this is the first time I've ever been in here. I've walked by this many a times. He walks into the barracks. He gets dragged into the barracks. Verse 35. When Paul got to the steps, he actually had to be carried by the soldiers because the mob was so wild. The crowd kept following and screaming, kill him! Does that sound familiar? What does that sound like? Yeshua. Yeshua, yeah. Yeshua. This is about 30 years later. Verse 37. As Saul, Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to Claudius Lysias, the commander, Is it all right if I say something to you? The commander said, You know Greek? Say, aren't you that Egyptian who tried to start a revolution a while back and led 4,000 uh, uh, 4, armed terrorists out into the desert? Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of an important city, and I ask your permission to let me speak to these people. So here it's revealing the fact that Paul can speak good, crisp Greek, right? But watch what he does here. Having received the permission from the commander, Saul stood on the steps and motioned with his hand to the people. And when they had finally become still, he addressed them in dialecto hebraidi, which could be translated as Aramaic or could be Hebrew. So here Paul is what we would say flexing a little bit. <laughs> Greek was becoming, quickly becoming the predominant language of the Jewish world. Even in Judea, uh, you, you might be hard pressed to find someone that was using good Hebrew as their mother tongue and conversing in good, good Hebrew, okay? And even Philo of Alexandria, the great Jewish historian could not speak Hebrew. So Paul is standing up on these steps, and what is he about to do? Speak in, the, in a language, a language of his people, the ancient Hebrew language, that connects them back to the Torah, back to the, uh, 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 the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's addressing them in this language. It'd be like if, um, you know, Adrian, who left Mexico when he was 14, he, he goes back to Mexico, and his family all gather around, and say, man, Adrian, where you been? You know, all his old high school friends, and and, and, you know, family, they, they come around and like, where you been? You know, what have you been doing with your life? Where have you been? And Adrian gets up and, you know, he stands on the table or the chair at the restaurant, you know, and he's, he's going to make a toast and he's got his cerveza, right? And he's going to make a toast. And, you know, he feels this connection to, to Mexico, right? He's going he's gonna to make this beautiful toast. All his friends and his family are there. And what does he do? Is he going to make this toast in, in like 
Spanglish or English? No. <laughs> yeah. He's going to be like, Shalom, homies. No. He, no, what is he going to do? He's going he's gonna to make the most eloquent, and he's going to roll his R's like he's never rolled them before, right? Right? And he's going to be like, like uh, what's, the, what's, the, what's the Mexican revolutionary guy? Uh, yeah, yeah, but yeah. He's, yeah. And so he's going to make this amazing toast, right? But they're going to be like, oh, Adrian's back. Like he knows he is still just like, just has this beautiful Spanish and, you know, it's like, man, a beautiful toast and he's connected back to his people. That's kind of what Paul's doing. He's like quiet in the crowd and being like, hey guys, listen to me as I speak our mother tongue, right? Listen to me. What am I doing here? I am saying that I have not, I have not Hellenized. I have not become this someone who's apostatized from my faith. I am still dyed in the wool Jewish. I'm a Benjamite, right? And that's what Paul is doing here. Sorry, Adrian. Verse, uh, chapter 22. Chapter 22. He says the following. Brothers and fathers, listen to me as I make my apologia. Apologia is where we get the word apologetics. Okay? It's a defense. It's to give a reason why you believe in something. It, you know, it's what the same word uh, Peter uses in 1 Peter 3.15 when he says, you should be ready to give a defense with meekness and humility, right? Why, why you have a hope that you have. It's apologia. Are you ready to give a defense, right? When they heard him speaking in Hebrew, thus proving his dyed-in-the-wool Jewishness, they settled down more. So they continued. He continued, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. And I was trained at the feet of Gamliel. Now everyone knows Gamliel. Everyone knew Gamliel. Now, Gamliel is arguably the most prominent and popular Jewish rabbi of that time. And still is to this day one of the fathers of modern Orthodox Judaism and Pharisaic Judaism. Studying at the feet of Gamliel would have been like uh, to study Torah under Gamliel would be like to study law under Lawrence Tribe. Have you ever heard of Lawrence Tribe? Okay, he was the law professor of, I think, three of the nine Supreme Court justices right now. Think about that. Uh, Ted Cruz, as well, was one of his students. But think about that. Like, he's like flashing his credentials. I am speaking in beautiful, eloquent, perfect Hebrew. I sat at the feet of Gamliel. In every detail of the Torah of our forefathers, I was zealous for God, as all of you are today. I persecuted to death the followers of this way. I arrested both men and women, throwing them in prison. The Kohen Gadol and the whole Sanhedrin can also testify to this. What does that mean? That means that the Sanhedrin and the Kohen Gadol knew Paul. They sent him out to do that. This guy, Paul, was a big name. He was a celebrity. There's one guy I, I'm friends with in Uganda. His name is God Shafiq. And he was, uh, he was raised Muslim. And he became, he rose through the ranks of the faith of Islam. He became a Muslim cleric, a sheikh. And they would go out to these parks in the city of Iganga, where I go every time. And they would um, go to these places where there's public water. And they have these hand pumps where they pump water out of the, the well. 
and people line up in the evening, especially women and children line up in the evenings and they have these big yellow jerry cans and they fill their water for the evening and that's what they're gonna cook with and bathe with in the evening. And then they lug all those home. Well, while they're standing there, the Muslims in that town, uh, they will set up these PA speakers and they'll set up like a little hasty stage. And the Muslim sheiks, they will, they will, uh, they will preach at people who are getting water and, and tell them to profess Muhammad as prophet and Allah as God and renounce idolatry and they'll try to convert them to Islam. Well, God Shafiq was one of those guys. He did that. And I met him, uh, not this most recent time, but the time before last, uh, there in Iganga, and he had just recently converted to the faith. He became born again and a follower of Yeshua. And I actually interviewed him and put the interview on our website if you want to listen to it. But now he goes back to those crusades as one of their former clerics, and he works the crowd, and it's like, here, you hear what they're saying? I believe that too. I used to be up there proclaiming that. Don't listen to them. That's believe in Yeshua of Nazareth instead. Like he actually, he actually proselytizes them for Yeshua now. Do you think he gets persecuted? <laughs> Absolutely. They've completely cut him off. They've cut off his family and, and, and completely humiliated him. So, indeed, after receiving letters from them to their colleagues in Damascus, I was on my way there in order to arrest the ones in that city too and bring them back to Yerushalayim for punishment. Verse 6. As I was traveling and approaching Damascus, around noon, a prayer time, suddenly a brilliant light from heaven flashed all around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Sir, who are you? I am Yeshua from Netzeret, he said to me, and you are persecuting me. Those who were with me did not see the light, but they did hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what should I do? Now, Paul tells this conversion story three times in the book of Acts. And this third time, he adds that line in. It's not meaning that it's like false. He just is including this one detail that he left out of the other two times. He says, what should I do? And the Lord said to him, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything that is to be laid out for you to do. I had been blinded by the brightness of the light, so my, compassion, my companions led me by the hand into Damascus. And there a man named Hananiah, an observant follower of the law, the Torah. Now this is a beautiful picture of a Messianic Jew, right? Who is keeping the testimony of Yeshua and also observing the Torah. He was highly regarded by the entire Jewish community there. He came to me and he stood by me and he said, Brother Paul, see again. And at that very moment, I recovered my sight and I saw him. He said, the God of our fathers determined in advance that you should know his will and see the righteous one, Hasadik, and to hear his voice. Let's pause there. Because if you don't know your Torah prophets and writings, you would gloss over that and you would think, oh yeah, yeah, Yeshua was righteous. Yeah, but what Hananiah is saying here is huge. I want to prove it to you. Go to Exodus 9.27. Exodus 9, verse 27. Exodus 9, 27. You know what? I'm sorry. Exodus 9, 6. Yeah, Exodus 9, 27. I doubted myself. Exodus 9, 27. <coughs> Pharaoh summoned Moshe and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned against the righteous one. In the Hebrew of this verse, it says against Hasadik, against the righteous one. I and my people are in the wrong. 
Hmm. So who is the righteous one according to Pharaoh? The God of Israel is. God of Israel is Hasadik. Now go to Isaiah chapter 24. Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24, 16. Isaiah 24, 16. Let's back up one verse. Isaiah 24, 15. So in the east, honor Adonai. In the coastlands, honor the name of Adonai, the God of Israel. From the farthest part of the earth, we heard them sing, Glory to Ha-Sadiq. Glory to the righteous one. Who are they giving glory to there? The God of Israel. It says it right there. The God of Israel. Okay, go to Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21. And guys, there are so many more verses than this. I'm just pulled out three because that's how you establish a matter is two to three witnesses. Proverbs 21 and verse 12. You there? Verse 12. Proverbs 21, 12. Hasadik, the righteous one, observes the house of the wicked and he overthrows the wicked to their ruin. Now go to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 and verse 52. Acts 7, 52. Acts 7, 52. There? Which, now who's talking here? Stephen is. He's about to be killed for his faith. And what does he say to these people who are about to stone him to death? Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who told in advance about the coming of Hasadik, the righteous one. And now you have become his betrayers and murderers. Can you see now how if you are the crowd standing around Stephen and he says that you killed the Hasadik, the righteous one, what would their ears have heard? <laughs> the God of Israel. That's a yeah, it's a big accusation, isn't it? So now go back to Acts chapter 22, verse 14. Hananiah says to Paul, The God of our fathers determined in advance that you should know his will and see the righteous one. That's a big claim, isn't it? So who is Hananiah equating the righteous one with? The God of Israel. Whether you agree with Hananiah or not, it's up to you. But you have to argue with Hananiah. Maybe at the resurrection you can. Because you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. So now what are you waiting for? Get up and immerse yourself and have your sins washed away as you call on his name. Now, Paul is an observant Jew at this point. What did Ian say at the play? Oh, the indignity, <laughs> right? He could totally do that. Oh, the indignity. I've been immersed. I've gone through the waters of a mikvah countless times as I approach the temple. I've studied the Torah. I probably have it memorized. And you're telling me I have to get up and be immersed again and have my sins washed away and call on the name of, of Yeshua? No, Paul doesn't act that way, obviously. But it shows us that Living a law in a living a life in accordance with the Torah, even all these righteous things, 
you still need to undergo being born again. You still need to undergo calling on Yeshua's name as Savior and undergoing immersion in water as a born-again believer. And you see the urgency there, right? There, there's an order and there's an urgency. Get up, immerse yourself, and have your sins washed away as you call on his name. Now, immersion is not a graduation party like many people treat it. Immersion in water in baptism is like a birthday party. <laughs> it's you being born again. It's the starting point for you and your faith. You got me? It's not the ending point. You have not made it. You've begun your race. And that's, in a way, Paul is having to hit this reset button and start over again under this headship and authority of Yeshua of Nazareth. Verse 17. After I had returned to Yerushalayim, again, he's addressing this big crowd, right? It happened that as I was praying in the temple, Paul's going to the temple to pray? Huh. I went into a ecstasis, a trance, and I saw Yeshua. Hurry, he said to me, get out of Yerushalayim immediately because they will not accept what you have to say about me. And I said, Lord, they know themselves that in every synagogue I used to imprison and flog those who trusted in you. Also, that when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I was standing there too, in full agreement. I was even looking after the clothes of the ones who were killing him. But he said, get going, for I am going to send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, remember the crowd is listening, right? The crowd has heard about the, the, the story of the road to Damascus. The crowd has heard about Paul going blind and, and being healed from that. The crowd has heard about Paul going into a trance and Yeshua talking to him in a trance. And the crowd is still relatively quiet, right? But then what does Paul say? I am sending you to the Gentiles. And that right there is the bridge too far. They had began listening to him up to this point. But now they shouted at the top of their lungs, Rid the earth of such a man! He's not fit to live! They were screaming. They were waving their clothes and throwing dust into the air. So the commander, remember, Claudius Lysias, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks and directed that he be interrogated and whipped in order to find out what they were yelling at him about. Now you got to remember, does Claudius speak Hebrew? Likely not. Claudius likely speaks Greek and Latin. He's a battalion commander of the 10th Legion of the Roman army. He has no idea this entire time what Paul is saying. He's no idea, probably. And suddenly the crowd goes berserk, and this commander's like, okay, what do I do, what do I do? You know what, for those who have ever served overseas, like in Afghanistan or Iraq, and like you're in there and you're like doing a patrol or something like that, and suddenly there's like this dispute, like maybe so-and-so stole a goat from this family and they're accusing them and they're saying, no, we didn't do it. And you're standing there and you're like, okay, what do we do, what do we do? And things start getting more and more heated. And you're like, oh, what? I can't understand anything anybody's saying. Who looks like the most intense instigator here? Let me, let's just grab this guy and zip tie him and bring him back with us. Maybe we'll figure something out. That's what's kind of going on here, right? And Claudius Lysus is like, I have no idea. Let's bring him in, whip him. He's up to something. We don't know what. But yeah, here we see the, 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 uh, the crowd, the scales tip, don't they? Oh, the Gentiles. That is the bridge too far. Even though that's Isaiah chapter 49 kind of stuff, where he says that I will make like, a, he will be like a light to the Gentiles, to the nations. And he will regather, it's too small of a matter to regather my people, but I will make your name like a light to the Gentiles. Luke 2 says that Yeshua 
will be like a light to the Gentiles as well. Paul is being like the mouthpiece for Yeshua to the nations. And again, that was just a bridge too far for these folks. So verse 25, but as they were stretching him out to be flogged, Saul said to the captain standing by, is it legal for you to whip a man who is a Roman citizen and hasn't even had a trial? Uh-oh. And when the captain heard that, he went and reported it to the commander. Do you realize what we're doing? This man is a Roman citizen. The commander came and said to Saul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, he said. And the commander replied, I bought my citizenship for a large sum of money. But I, Paul says, was born to it. And at once the man who had been about to interrogate him, they drew back from him. And the commander was afraid too, because he realized that he put this man, who was a Roman citizen, in chains, which was against Roman law at that time. You see, let's pause here. Believers, you and me, just like Paul, we should make strong stands on our civil and legal rights when they are trampled on by a government whether it be secular or religious, okay? So if a government is telling you to do something that's illegal by its own government, stand on your civil liberties. Say, no, I will not do that. Be meek and humble about it. Be peaceable. And if that same government is asking you to do something that's legal within that government's framework, but illegal according to God's law, do the same thing. Got me? All right, that includes doing things like researching who to vote for and then going and driving and voting for those people. Being educated in what is going on in the political sphere. Don't check out. I've checked out before. Don't do it. I checked back in. It's so important. Down to who you vote for as mayor, as sheriff, county commissioners, and on up from there. Exercise your power as a citizen. Yeah, there might be a lot of corruption. There might be a lot of shenanigans going on. But stand on your civil principles, your civil liberties, and say, no, I won't do that. Your own law says that that's illegal for me to do. Hold them accountable to that. Verse 30, however, the next day, since he wanted to know the specific charge the Jews were bringing against him, he released him and ordered the head priest and the whole Sanhedrin to meet. Then he brought Saul down and put, them, put him in front of them. A lot going on here, right? And next week we're going to get into chapter 23. But I got some lessons that I took away from chapter 22. And I made a list of these lessons. Number one, I just said, I want you as believers and followers of Messiah to stand on and exercise your civil rights and liberties as citizens of the USA and the kingdom of God. I want you to vote. Peacefully protest when necessary. All right? We've done that. All right, how many of you protested with me before? It was a good bonding experience, right? Like, yeah, we all get flicked off together, yeah. Number two lesson I learned. To throw out the divinity of Yeshua requires one to throw out the New Testament in its entirety. Yes, I just said that. There is too much in the New Testament, the apostolic scriptures, that points to the divinity of Yeshua. And if you throw that out and you say, no, he's not divine, throw out the whole New Testament then. Because according to that, it's trash. Because all those people in there are claiming to and attesting to the divinity of Yeshua. And guess what? When you throw that part of the Bible out, you're just a hop, skip, and a jump from throwing Yeshua out as well. Don't believe me? I've seen it time and time again. I promise. Don't do it. 
All right. Carol, you had a question. Follow the money. See who is the biggest contributor to the, to the WHO as well. <laughs> um, number three, Paul's testimony teaches us that being zealously religious does not reconcile us to God. Oh, man, really? No, it doesn't. All right. Now, Paul has a, a wonderful testimony. And you can see it, he's reiterating that testimony here. And he's going through and he's retelling his story. And, and what is the structure of this testimony? It's the time before Yeshua. And for some of you, you're thinking about that time before Yeshua, right? And you're like, ugh. Then there's an encounter with Yeshua. And then there's the call that Yeshua has placed on your life. I want you to take this week and think about that. Can you clearly articulate that in your life? There's the Gabe Rutledge before Yeshua. And these are the parts that if I'm talking to someone, I can share with them. Look. I was trapped in that same sin. All right? I was addicted to that same stuff. Then there's the encounter with Yeshua, and it usually starts with a but. I met, a, I met my Savior. Right? And then there's, and also, He has called me, and He has redeemed me, and He has sent me to you to share the gospel with you. And then you can respond, right? They can respond. But have a testimony and be ready to articulate that testimony to anyone and everybody. Can you stand up here right now and clearly articulate like Paul did? Can you clearly articulate that to a coworker? Here's my time before. Here's my encounter. Here's my call. Revelation 12, 11, if you want to turn there real quick. It's the last verse I'm going to take you to. Revelation 12. Revelation 12, 11. It says, they defeated him because of the Lamb's blood and because the message or the testimony, when, even when facing death, they did not cling to life. So this is talking about people who overcame and, and endured till the end. How did they do it? Through their testimony and through their not clinging to life even unto death. You see Paul exemplifying that here? Testimony Yeshua? That's fine. I know that I'll be bound. I know that I'll be whipped. I know that I'll be imprisoned. I know that I'm going to die. And the, 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 the irony here, the, the humor here, I should, I should say, is, remember Paul says, I've got to go to Rome. And what's about to happen? Paul is about to get a free ride to Rome. All his meals covered. His room and board paid for by the Roman Empire. And he's going to be under house arrest for up to two years where he can receive visitors and he can write letters. I mean, this, the, the Caesar doesn't even know what he just brought into his capital city by bringing Paul the Apostle into Rome. But that's kind of the irony here is Paul will go and he will do that. And he is going to plant some seeds in Rome that will, that will just explode in growth. Last lesson I learned. Paul has a testimony. 
His testimony is clearly articulated, and it teaches us that salvation is by God's grace alone, and by his power, and not by our merit or our own will. Okay? If you're in this room, and uh, you're doing Torah things, and you're doing a great job at that, you're keeping his commandments, and you might even you know, be observing the prayer times, or reading your Torah, studying Hebrew, or whatever the case may be. But if you have not made a profession in Yeshua as Nazareth, and not been immersed, not accepted him as your atoning work and your salvation over your life, then you are still lost and without hope. Case in point, Paul the Apostle. He was lost and without hope. He had to be immersed. He had to profess his name. You got me? Now you're like, yeah, I think that's me. I think I, I, think I am there. I'm just kind of spinning my tires and I'm like trying to do all these things and, and it makes me kind of feel good. It gives me a sense of purpose and maybe connects me with something ancient, but I haven't really professed him as my Lord and Savior and been immersed into his name and his authority. What are you waiting for? Come see me. Talk to me today. No shame. Because I've been there and done that. We're going to go now to Q&A, and I want to hear what you guys learned about Acts chapter 22, but let's close in prayer first. Abba Father, I thank you so much for this time, this Shabbat we could spend together, to study your word and to praise you and to worship you. And may our day today continue to be all about you and focused on you. As we break bread and fellowship together, may we do so in a memory of Yeshua who was broken for our sins while we were dead and undeserving of his grace and his salvation. And it's in his precious name I pray. Amen. Well, guys, just shoot your hand up if you have any questions. we got plenty of time, so let me know if you have any questions or observations. Jason. So, and I don't know if this continues on in the culture today, but what is it about their identity or their relationship to their faith that makes the idea of Gentiles being redeemed or blessed by God in any way so kind of like abrasive. So those who can hear, he's asking, what is it about their faith or the ethnicity or the religion that made Gentiles coming to faith and having salvation so abrasive to their ear? And that's a really good question. And you got to remember that, Jason, like a Gentile back in this time when we're reading in Acts chapter 22 is a lot different than a Gentile that you might, that might be ringing you out with your groceries at Publix today or, or tomorrow because it's Shabbat doesn't say. Um, because Christianity has so swept the so swept the world and the globe and elevated, so drastically elevated the morality of humanity to a certain extent, we are all kind of, oh, you can sit on that chair right there, thank you. We are all kind of de-paganized to a certain extent. Like we don't, um, by and large, we don't commit some of these horrible atrocities like they would have done in the ancient, in the ancient world. Um, but that was more commonplace at, at their, their time right here. So to say a Gentile can come to faith and have a place in the world to come, and also that the Jewish Messiah, the Messiah promised to Israel, came for them as well, would have been very abrasive to their ears because they're thinking, wait a second, what did they do to deserve that? Um, you know, and... and um, I think that there is at that time this, uh, like, I got a picture here actually, let me show you. There is some very intense racial divides, and that manifests itself right here in the structure of the temple itself, which is the soreg, the three-foot wall. You've probably seen this before. And uh, Gentiles just couldn't go there. It was presumed that if you're a Gentile, even if you're a righteous Gentile, like a God-fearing, a Phobominos, 
Even if you're a righteous, God-fearing Gentile, you can't go past that wall in the temple. And so there was this, um, there was this wall that was erected that was a man-made wall, literally, but also religiously. That unless you make a physical conversion to faith as a, Gentile, as a, as a, as a Jew, and you undergo Brit Milah or circumcision, and you undergo a mikvah, and, uh, and we, we authorize you and all that stuff, and, and then and only then are you converted to Judaism, and then and only then can you cross that, that wall right there. But the, there is nothing in Scripture that says that you have to do that to approach God's presence. He's always wanted his house to be a house of prayer for all nations. But um, it's, it's a well-intentioned but unbiblical prohibition. Does that make sense? So, yeah, by that time, there was a clear... Just like, um, just like if I were to go to Crown Heights, New York, and uh, try to walk around... I, I, I've been to Mea Sharim in Jerusalem. Have you guys ever been to Mea Sharim before? It's an ultra-Orthodox community in, uh, outside of uh, Jerusalem. You've been there? And, uh, I mean, I, I wear like this right here um, and walk around uh, on, in the street. And you feel like an odd man out, just dressed like this right here, fully covered. Um, uh, if you're a lady and you go to Mea Sharim, you better do your homework first, right? There is a clear, there is a clear uh, delineation between modern Jerusalem, industrial Jerusalem and Israel, especially Tel Aviv, and, and some of these pockets of intense Orthodox observance. And that is by design because they want everyone to intermarry in that community in that neighborhood um, and, and be insulated from all that stuff outside there that is kind of a pollution of, of their faith. And they want they, they see themselves as the righteous ones that are carrying for the torch of the Torah, Torah learning. Um, so yeah, that, that, that just kind of happens. Sometimes we as humans, we just go really tribal. And uh, we think, you know, this is, our, this is our people. And if you're not part of our people, then, you know, but the gospel calls us to break down those as Paul calls in Ephesians 2, middle walls of partition between races. And he says that he has turned Jew and Gentile into one new man and brought peace to them. So does that answer your question a little bit? Yeah, I just, well, it's just the, the, con, the, the context and attitude that, that's curious for me. And yeah. Just, you know, even to the point where I would want to understand like how conversion went on. Yeah. You know, not from the followers of the way, but with mm -hmm. Judaism itself at the time. Yeah, yeah. Was that common? Was it uncommon? Was it... Conversions, you're saying? Yeah. I don't know the rate at which people converted into Judaism, but here, nowadays, it's it's very few and far between, for sure. And it's a very lengthy process as well. Uh, very hard process. Depending on the sect of Judaism, which you're trying to convert to, but yeah, I would say that that was pretty pretty tough process. But good question. Any other questions I saw? Did I see Lisa's hand up? Yeah, um, I just want to mention in um, Numbers chapter 15, it talks about one law, one custom mm -hmm. for you as a stranger yeah. among you. Um, but also, then Paul talks about that we are to Gentile to promote the Jews to jealousy. Yeah. And a lot of times, the church has a different idea about how we're supposed to promote Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not wrong, not like the most. And so you've got to believe this. Yeah. It's making them want what we've got. Yeah. It's more of the jealousy than the provoking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Any thoughts? Yeah, Jackie. I was thinking about the wall. You know, it's also the 
Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a good point. It, it was to protect the sanctity of the temple because there was a lot of nasty pagan shenanigans going on at that time. So, like I said, it's well-intentioned. And you don't want anyone just... And when you watch that documentary, you're going to see something and you're going to be, like, shocked by it um, and, and, and how they desecrate the temple. Um, but, yeah, like I said, it's very well-intentioned. And we don't want just anybody. And if you were a Gentile and you crossed that wall... Did you know the Romans suspended capital punishment in all the land of Judea, right? You could not exact capital punishment. This, the Romans made exception for. If you cross that wall, they allowed the temple police to kill you on the spot. If you were a Gentile, yeah. Well, they probably yeah. saw the Gentiles as savage and mm -hmm. and Yeah, and they were by and large. Because Gentile uh, became synonymous with idolater. Yeah. yeah, and it is in some pockets of Judaism even to this day. Gentile is synonymous with idolater. Yeah. So and that may be something that, that is crass to them. Like, we believe, and I just taught openly, that Yeshua is Hasadik. Yeshua is the righteous one. He's the God of Israel. Emmanuel. And that would have been very abrasive to their ears. That would be abrasive to, if I walk around Mea Sharim and I say, Yeshua of Nazareth is Hasadik. They'd be like, okay, let's find it pole to tie this guy to and <laughs> beat him, right? But yeah. Another interesting observation that's not on the screen that I have is that this chapter kind of blows a hole in the whole prosperity word of faith doctrine. Wait, what am I talking about? In the word of faith and prosperity doctrine, it's have enough faith, good things happen to you. Give enough money, you'll receive blessings. Pray enough, do enough, you're, you'll prosper at your job, right? You'll find favor at everything. And maybe that's the case. Maybe you will. But the Spirit of God led Paul into a position where he loses his freedom, is going to be beaten multiple times, is going to be shipwrecked, is going to be bit by a snake, is going to be in house arrest and chains for two years, and then is have his head severed from his shoulders. If that doesn't sound <laughs> completely opposite of the prosperity doctrine, I don't know what is. Don't buy into that garbage. That's exactly what it is. The Spirit of God will lead you to suffer for His namesake. And it's how you respond to that suffering that makes all the difference. You got me? Don't curse the suffering. Look for ways to sanctify His name in it. Any other questions or comments? You guys are kind of quiet today. Oh, thank you, man. That means a lot coming from you. Thank you.